Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. Louis Friedberg is in Los Angeles this week, where he spoke with Los Angeles Unified Superintendent Austin Butner about challenges and priorities one year after the teacher strike. As California's largest school district and the second largest school district in the nation, what happens in LAUSD has an outsized impact on California schools as a whole. Butner is in his second year as superintendent, what's often considered to be the most difficult and contentious job in California education. Welcome, Superintendent. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been almost exactly a year since the very contentious teacher strike in the district. I think teacher strikes are always contentious, but this one was very visible, not only to the state, but the whole country. How would you say things are now, a year later? Have the wounds started to heal? Have they healed? Uh, How would you characterize relations right now? I'd say the relations are constructive. Uh, We said at the time, uh, myself, the head of the union, one contract doesn't solve it all. One contract's not going to solve decades of frustrations felt by educators. One contract's not going to get us towards funding adequacy. But it provided a framework for progress and moving forward, and we're moving forward together. Let me ask you about that, because I did note when the parcel tax was on the ballot, uh, which didn't pass, there was seemed to be you and the union, uh, Alex Caputo-Pearl, were working very closely together. It almost well, seemed like you had a kind of a detente. Is, is that how, how, what, how would you characterize yeah, relationship? I, you know, I don't think it's union? gone so far as a bromance. Let's not confuse folks. But okay. before, during, and after the strike, a lot, we wanted a lot of the same things. This is fundamentally a struggle for adequacy in public education. If this were New York, we'd be investing about $29,000 a year in a student. In California, we're asked to make do with 16000 And therein lies root cause for many of the issues that manifest themselves in the strike and that we continue to face today together, ourselves, our labor partners, and the communities we serve. And to put that gap in funding in human terms over the course of a child's K-12 journey, that's the cost of about a reading teacher and an aide. So imagine we took every second grader and they had their own reading teacher. Every child becomes proficient. Every child could read. That sounds like nirvana to me. So it's fundamentally about a fight for adequacy, and we're in that fight together. Well, let me ask you about that. One of the demands of the strike, and not only here, but also in Oakland and other places where there's been uh, labor unrest, is pressure on the state to come up with more funding. But that's, it's fairly fundamental in California. It may be different in other states. All of our funding comes from the state. So a strike against an individual school district is sort of at odds with where the solution may lie. Because if our funding comes from the state and we together want to have smaller classes, which I think we all do, together we'd like to pay our educators more, which I think we can all agree on. Okay, where's more going to come from? It comes from the state where funding comes from. We can't unilaterally decide to have a smaller class size if we don't have funding to pay for more teachers to be able to do that. We can't provide additional compensation to educators in our schools unless we have the funding to do it. So in California, it's really a state conversation. School districts sit in this middle place, but we don't have a money, we don't have a printing press in the basement, we don't have an independent source of revenue that the state's not providing us. But let me ask you about that, because I think when the LA strike happened, followed closely by Oakland. Uh, The Red for Ed movement, people were predicting there's going to be massive teacher activism across the state. Well, that actually hasn't happened. I mean, there were a couple of smaller strikes, but but things have been pretty quiet for the past year. 
I wonder if you have any thoughts as to why that is, why what happened here and then in Oakland didn't sort of trigger a wave of protest. Is it because teachers realize, well, there's only so much you're going to be able to win from a school district? Well, I, I think we're taking the fight, we're taking the conversation where it belongs to Sacramento. During the strike uh, and the Red Fred conversation, I said, how about Green Fred? We need money. Show me the money. So we've taken the conversation to Sacramento, we and our labor partners together, we and other school districts. So Oakland, ourselves, others are advocating very strongly for additional funding in Sacramento. We'll ultimately bring that conversation to voters because in the state of California, legislators act, they appropriate, but the source of funding typically comes from a ballot initiative that voters lead. So it's an end conversation, and that's where the energy has to go, that's where the conversation needs to go to further educate and inform both our legislative bodies as well as voters. And is that what you're looking to now, the split role initiative in, in November, I mean, in terms of additional funds? It may be. Let's separate the source of the money from the use of the money. I think we can all agree we need more funding in public education, whether it turns out to be that construct or others. I haven't read that ballot language, but we will be supportive of any path to provide additional funding to support kids in our schools. During the strike, you were making, and many others were making dire predictions about what would happen if the strike went forward, and you agreed to a lot of things that were also going to cost money. Um, I think you predicted well, well, that in like by 2021, 21, 22, the district would have exhausted its entire reserve. We're still spending our reserves. That hasn't changed. What was agreed to as a consequence of the strike is what was offered before. Same wage, same reduction in class size. What we did agree to do is to take a step in future years and have a more dramatic reduction in class size, assuming we can find the funding. So we, our labor partners, the mayor of Los Angeles, all those who supported the resolution of the strike agreed to do more in the out years, years three, four, five, but that only happens if we could find additional resources. And there was agreement at the time, it was very clear at the time that we have to find additional funding to do that. But the path we're on in the next couple of years, we're spending our reserves, we're authorizing or budgeting more money than the state provides us. So the state provides us $16,402 a student. Our budget this year is in excess of $16,402 a student, which means we're taking whatever savings existed and spending it in the classroom today, knowing that can't continue forever, which is why we have to go to the legislature and get more funding. The district is still at risk, Correct. in other words. Correct. There's yeah, no I mean, change. And you're a, you come from a finance kind of background. Um, does this make you nervous? Uh, beyond nervous, but... We have an imperative today. There are students in our schools today, so we're trying to do the best possible job. And if that means taking savings to the best possible job today, that's the right thing for our students today, knowing for tomorrow we've got to find a way to do better. Well, let me ask you about teachers, because that really was the, the, the heart of the strike. And paying teachers a living wage has become challenging in many parts of California. We're a high-class place to live. So we've got to do better. We have to be able to provide for not just a starting wage, but a career path wage, including salary and benefit, that can attract the best teachers for our students, which is what they deserve. Now, we're trying to address that in a couple of different ways. Uh, we have a district internship program. We're trying to grow our own. So in addition to working with uh, the traditional education institutions in California and elsewhere who help grow new teachers, we're trying to grow our own. We're also looking at other assets we have. So we'll be announcing shortly a program to try to create more affordable housing, more employee housing in our school footprint. We happen to be the largest landowner and landlord in the communities we serve. We own 80 million square feet of buildings, 200 million square feet of land. 
And one of the things we'll be talking about is how we can create affordable housing within that footprint, respecting the communities we serve, but using some of that to serve the needs of our employee base, whether it's someone who works in one of our cafeterias or a new teacher coming to our school district. So we think of the total solution, not just being the wage of today, but wage, work environment, and perhaps housing as a way to attract the best and the brightest to work and in Los are, Angeles. But how are you doing though in terms of vacancies and so on? Are you still able to fill vacancies? To what extent are you having to turn to underprepared teachers or people with emergency credentials and so on? So, so we're keeping our head above water. I think we're, the pressure's felt most acutely now is some specialized credentials, physics, chemistry. We have the biggest in this state, perhaps in the country, dual language program. Uh, where credentialing becomes an issue when you get to uh, the upper grades for sure. So in some of the specialty areas, we feel most acutely, uh, but across the board for sure, which is why we're leaning in, making sure we have a fair compensation package, thinking about the total work environment, including housing. Let me ask you about your position. Most major school districts are experiencing quite a good deal of superintendent turnover. The average tenure it seems to be about three years. LA has had its own turnover, often in some cases, unfortunate ones, in case of Michelle King, who passed away in office. You know, during, in the middle of the strike, you were in a difficult position, and there were some, some predictions that you wouldn't, wouldn't be around that, that long. I think now people are saying, well, maybe Austin Butner is going to be around for a while. You know, I, I'm fortunate. I'm a public school kid. Uh, I believe we should provide that same opportunity for every child in this country, not just in Los Angeles, elsewhere. And so at this point in my life, the ability to do this work, to be part of this amazing organization and help provide the foundation for the future, part of that foundation is continuity. Continuity and leadership matters. We talk a lot about continuity in the classroom, keeping politics out of school so we can have the best educators doing good work. I think the same thing also matters and applies to leadership. But if I can continue in this role and provide stability, provide a consistent approach, and I've said since I started, I don't believe the answer lies in some sort of revolution. I believe it involves evolution, each day doing the work we do a little bit better to serve the needs of our students. That's where progress lies, and that's what we're working towards. So you are planning to, to stick around for a while? Yes. Let me ask you about the issue of governability. A lot of people feel that LA Unified is just too big and probably should be a bunch of smaller districts, but it is what it is. Is it possible to really manage a district of this size in a way that really translates into kids doing or, or, or succeeding to their full potential? So our biggest initiative this year, last year, this year, next year, is to go from one size fits all across 700 square miles 700,000 students we serve, where we need to better recognize the unique needs of each student and the unique needs of the many communities we serve. So we're pushing all of our resource out of the center, all the decisions out of the center to the communities we serve. So 700 square miles, think of one community, Boyle Heights. In Boyle Heights, we have 22 schools with about 12,000 students. We're setting that up as its own organization where we have leadership, all the resources from maintenance and operations to psychiatric social workers to math coaches, all there. We're fostering collaboration between those schools, the communities they serve. So it's easier for families to come in and advocate for their kids, be part of the schools. It's easier for community organizations to help partner with individual schools or that group of schools as a whole. 
So a big initiative of ours is to make Los Angeles Unified more local. It has to be because that's where the answers reside. That's the journey families are on with us, students are on. They go to one school. We may have 1,400 differing schools, but if we can better serve the community of Boyle Heights by making ourselves more local, we're going to do that, and that's what we're trying to do. One last question. I do have to ask you about charter schools. That was a major issue during the strike. The governor, as you know, reached an agreement with both the teachers' unions and the charter school representatives, unexpected, I think. Have passions kind of cooled on that front? Uh, where, where do things stand now in terms of charter, the charter school and the charter expansion in LA Unified? So it's my job to make sure all students are getting a great education. We oversee about 500,000 students who are in traditional schools every day, another 125,000 or so who are in a charter school model. Uh, all need to be good schools, all need to be great schools. And so that's what we're working towards. I think the framework the governor and all the parties provided gives us a foundation for the next chapter. Some of the questions that were asked were the right questions to be asking. The work we're doing now is to connect that framework to each of these communities, because that's ultimately how public education be put together. So whether it's in Boyle Heights or Chatsworth or San Pedro, we want to make sure all students are getting great education, all schools are held to the same level of transparency, irrespective of their governance model. One of the key parts of that compromise was allowing districts to deny charter applications if it had an impact on the district's finances. Have you exercised that provision yet, or do you that think you will? Is, that law is not operable until uh, the middle of this calendar year, starting next school year. So we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. We're still doing homework to make sure we understand the intent and the letter of the law. So we've got a lot of work going on reaching out to communities we serve, reaching out to all the different parties who were part of that agreement. We started by speaking with the legislative authors of the agreement. We had them speak to us and to our board. Uh, but the actual adoption starts in July of this year. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Superintendent Austin Butner in Los Angeles Unified. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. up to the seventh anniversary of the passage of the local control funding formula. The funding law ushered in a new era of local control and a system of more equitable funding. It provides extra money to districts based on the numbers of low-income children, foster youth, homeless youth, and English learners. But a scathing analysis last fall of three districts' budgets by State Auditor Elaine Howell concluded it's nearly impossible to determine if the district's are actually spending all the extra funding when the students are entitled to it. The document that districts write to lay out their goals and spending, called the LCAP, tend to be numbingly long and dense. Tracking dollars is like searching for Waldo. This week, the State Board of Education approved a major rewrite of the rules governing the LCAP. The new version got mostly high praise, and that's good news for parents whose participation in the LCAP process is critical. If districts do follow the new instructions, LCAP should be shorter, written in plain English. There should be better explanations about how money is being used and whether the money is actually working. But Assemblywoman Shirley Weber of San Diego says the LCAP changes don't go far enough. She requested the state audit, and this week she introduced two bills to implement its findings. One calls for a uniform way to track spending with annual reports to the state so that researchers and lawmakers actually know whether districts are spending the extra money on low-income children and English learners. 
The other bill would end what critics have long called a glaring loophole. At the end of each year, districts can roll unspent dollars they've committed to English learners and low-income kids into their general fund. That creates what Weber calls a perverse incentive to build surpluses to use money however districts want, denying poor kids the services they've been promised. At her press conference this week, Weber said she's waited long enough for change, and she chafed at the suggestion that transparency demands in the bills would be burdensome. In a press conference I did uh, in San Diego concerning LCFF, someone said to me, you realize, Dr. Weber, that schools are saying this is quite a burden to basically have to do the accountability, accounting for the resources. And I said to them, the real burden is on the children who do not get the services they deserve. The real burden is living a life without having adequate skills to make a living. And so if I give you billions of dollars and you consider it a burden to tell me what you did with it, then I, we should find someone else who, is, who doesn't see it as a burden, but see it as an opportunity to help children so they will not be burdened by ignorance. Governor Brown threatened to veto the last time Weber introduced a similar bill, so she withdrew it. We'll be following its progress through the legislature this year, waiting for Governor Newsom to weigh in. It will be his first test on where he stands on the balance between local control and accountability. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Lewis will be back with me next week.